I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And one thing about the news is that when stories are no longer new, they disappear from the public consciousness. Like politics, the news business is so much theater. Of course, reality doesn't quite work that way. Problems do not disappear when the news media decides it has other new things to catch our commercially valuable attention. Sometimes, eventually, people start thinking, Whatever, whatever happened to that? Like those big fires in Australia. Well, they're no longer on the front pages or on mainstream media shows. Out of sight, out of mind, the old saying goes. So does that mean they went away and everything's fine in Australia now? We all remember they were incredibly huge, but I frankly have no idea how much of the huge continent of Australia was burning, how many square miles, how many people and houses were destroyed, and how many wild animals perished. Do we understand why these fires happened? Were they preventable? Are current Western fire prevention methods up to the task? And do we really know what role, if any, does global warming play? What is the world's degree of responsibility for taking effective preventative action? With us today to help understand is Daniel Judd, a graduate student in political theory at Oxford University, beautiful campus, who has written the cover story of the February 10th edition of The Nation, titled, Australia's Devastating Wildfires Were Not Inevitable. And the story is subtitled, The Country Was Once Actually Poised to Lead, on climate politics. Daniel Judd, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for having me. Well, Judd says that there was and probably still is great anger at the government in Australia that, in his words, Australia went to war with itself. There's a lot of fire behind the fire. And maybe, perhaps as our guest ponders, that, quote, the way to understand the fires is as the beginning of the end of climate inaction, a darkly apt coda to the year the world woke up to the climate crisis. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us, Dan. When and how did the fires start? Do we know? And and specifically, how much of Australia was burned? What is the damage so far? And and the smoke, how, how big was that? How far across the world has it spread? So fill us in with some of those factual details, please. Well, thanks again for having me on. Um, the fires began, actually, uh, your, your intro was right. Not only do we forget about things after they disappear from the news media, but we also don't cover them when they begin often. If you're in Australia right now in some of the places where the fires have been going, this hasn't been a story that began in December. The fires actually started back in September this year. So in some places in southwest, southeastern Australia, excuse me, the fires have been going for um, over, a, over a third of a year now. 
And the damage, as you would expect, has been quite severe. So in terms of uh, sheer size, there have been over 30 million acres of land burned by the Australia fires Mm. in this season. That's from September to now. And to give you a sense of scale, because that's (laughs) not a number I certainly can get my head around. (laughs) I have no idea. um, The California fires in 2018 one of the worst fire seasons in California history burned 1.9 million acres. So that's about 15 times less than what's been burned in Australia. Um, The damage as a result, it's a pretty staggering figure, and the damage as a result has been equally staggering. Dozens of lives, uh, that count is still going up. We're in the mid-20s right now. Um, Thousands of homes at this point, have been lost to the fires. And, and this is perhaps the most staggering statistic of them all. Uh, scientists estimate that over a billion animals have died as a result of the fires, over one billion. Mm. And the smoke, to get to your last question, has at this point circumnavigated the world. So it's gone around, past New Zealand, past Chile, back across to Australia, to its original starting point oh in the southeast of Australia. Wow, we we are at a global community now, that's for sure. And I assume the fires are not completely out, over, and forgotten now. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, they're not. In fact, just this past week, the um, state of the Australian capital territory so the capital city in Australia is called Canberra, oh, yeah. and the state around it is kind of like our Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Um, that state declared a state of emergency this past week because of a fire that was coming dangerously close to the capital. It's the first time they've had to do that since 2003, when a fire came through the capital of Canberra in the suburbs and killed dozens of people and destroyed hundreds of homes in the course of a day. So oh. the the level of intensity of these fires has not abated at all. My goodness. And, you know, when you think about, I can't even think about a billion. A billion is a thousand million. So a thousand million animals are estimated to have died. That's, it's just beyond comprehension. As you write, uh, Dan, the technical term for what we saw that day, you saw a big cloud, was pyrocumulonimbus, or pyro-CB for short. What does that mean? And how does it closely relate to the image of Hiroshima with which we are all familiar? Yeah, so this is a kind of funny, uh, well, darkly funny um, piece of the fires. Just to give some context to, to the term that you just threw out there, the pyrocumulonimbus, um, I saw one of these uh, strangely termed clouds when I was reporting in a town called Katoomba, which I think we'll talk about a bit yes. later, maybe, yes. with a mayor named Mark Greenhill, who's the mayor of this town, and they've been surrounded by fires for all of December in this town. And while we were talking, we saw this massive plume of smoke come up from the window behind us. And he got up and ran to the window um, screamed an expletive that I won't repeat here, Thank and you. said, that's a pyro-CB. Um, and what pyro-CBs are, 
are fire clouds. So they are huge plumes of smoke that have been generated by a fire that is so strong that it creates its own weather system. Hmm. And what you get is this booming cloud that rises up and looks very much like a mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb. Uh, and it was actually while researching pyro CDs that I realized that one of the famous pictures of the bombing of Hiroshima at the end of World War II uh, that we often associate with the mushroom cloud of the bomb itself is actually a picture of the fire cloud that came directly after the bomb was dropped and a fire swept through the city. So if you want, uh, if listeners want a sense of what it's like to be literally under fire in Australia right now, it feels in some ways like the land around you is being bombed. Oh, my goodness. And I can't help but wonder, but there have been other fire bombings. There was the fire bombing of Tokyo, the fire bombing of Dresden. I, I wonder if there were the pyrocumulonimbus clouds at that time. I imagine that there were. And you mentioned Katumba. I imagine so. Yeah, Katumba, the mayor of, of Katumba. Uh, said, he had a quote, which seems to sum up, which is perhaps the most important vantage point of the tragedy. He said, there's no one in this federal government that has any semblance of a sense of crisis, end of quote. Tell us about that and, and what Katumba is and what you experienced there and, and what he meant by that. Sure, yeah. So Katumba is a small town nestled in this group of towns uh, called the Blue Mountains, which is about 100 kilometers west of Sydney in the state of New South Wales in southeastern Australia. So these, this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site it's incredibly beautiful, these kind of sweeping mountain ranges, kind of like Appalachia wow. in, in the United Western, States, yeah. um, and very near to, one of, to the biggest city in, in Australia. And Mark Greenhill has been the mayor of the Blue Mountains for the past six years. He's lived there for the past 30. And I spoke with him on that day that we saw the fire cloud, the Pyro CB, and the impression that I got from his work in Katumba is that he is one of hundreds of local civic civil servants all around Australia who, for the entire month of December and most of the month of January, have been trying to fight to, to cope with the after effects of fires that they themselves do not have the resources to combat. Right. And so what Mark meant when he said to me, there is no one in this current federal government that has any semblance of a sense of crisis, he meant that while these local communities are doing what they can right. to fight back against the fires, they are quite powerless when it comes to actually taking measures to stop the fires or prevent them. They just don't have the resources. And much of that falls on federal authorities and federal authorities providing funds to state-run fire services, a situation very similar to what we have in the U.S. Yeah. And for most of January, those and federal support by Scott Morrison, the prime minister uh -huh. and his liberal government, were just not there. Yeah, we'll talk about SCOMO later. I hadn't heard that expression before, but we will <laughs> hit on that. And uh, there, there are ironies you observed, and 
there was one you say there are signs I'm curious what you meant by this. There are signs that the link between the world and our words is beginning to fray. What do you mean by that? That's pretty interesting. So what I mean by that is when I was in Katoomba and reporting for most of the month of December on these fires uh, across New South Wales in Australia, I got the sense that there was a kind of breakdown in the way that we use language to talk about these natural disasters. Um, I wonder if this is something that you or that listeners uh, across across the U.S. Have, have felt as well when we face natural disasters in our own communities. So much of our language relies on metaphors about nature. Um, and when nature starts to look like something we don't understand anymore when the world around you is going up in smoke it becomes very hard to use language in a way that feels literal so i'll give you an example that really struck me in katoomba and in sydney actually as well there are signs all over the place in public squares on main street in katoomba that say this is a smoke-free zone and obviously they're talking about cigarettes right um but when the air around you is filled with smoke to the point where your eyes are burning and you can't breathe for very long outside without feeling sick. It becomes a bit ironic to look at all of these signs that are proclaiming smoke-free zones. And you get this sense that the, the way that we represent our world in language is really starting to break down with these climate change-related natural disasters. Mm insufficient. For those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about the uh, Australian fires with our guest Daniel Jutt, who is in uh, somewhere in England near Oxford University, who's written the uh, cover story on the February 10th edition of The Nation. The title is Australia's Devastating Wildfires Were Not Inevitable. And the subtitle is The Country Was Once Actually Poised to Lead on climate politics. And humans being human, you know, we care about one another. When we see a disaster, we rush out to help. Many countries around the world sent in firefighters to help put them out. But as the old saying is, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. As you say, Australia has seen many terrible fire seasons. Now, Australia is hotter and drier than it once was, and brush fires were a lot less common than they are today. What are the known contributing factors to that? So the first factor to get out there is absolutely 100% the changing climate. The climate crisis and climate change, or global warming as you referred to it earlier, is supercharging these fires in a way that means that the fire seasons that Australia is going to face now and in the next decades, depending on what we do to act on climate change, will be these kind of, frankly, apocalyptic scenes, similar to what we've seen this summer. The reason, the way that climate change contributes to these fires is something that climate scientists who I spoke to in Australia, and also firefighters on the ground, both recognize. The climate scientists will give you the kind of bird's eye view. They'll tell you, as you just said, that Australia is hotter and drier than it once was, that the conditions 
which lead to bigger fires, drought, lots of what they call fuel load, which is basically dry landscapes uh-huh. um, that have built up over the course of the spring season and into the summer. Um, and then also just conti- longer stretches of continued heat without much rain. Those are going to be the main contributing factors. But you can also see it from on the ground. And a lot of the longtime firefighters I talk to, people uh-huh. who have been fighting fires for 30, 40 years of their lives, told me unequivocally that these brush fires were absolutely unprecedented in the way that they behaved, in the manner in which they spread, the kinds of land that they burned. So some of the fires are burning rainforests, which is something that one firefighter told me he never expected to see in his lifetime. Um, Those factors are very easy to see on the ground. You don't have to be a climate scientist Mm -hmm. to know that Climate change is a major contributing factor to these fires. But it does, I, I, yeah, and and we'll talk about Australia's role and etc. And there was an article in a uh, different magazine by Abaki Beck, uh, who said uh, that Western style land management, Western style land management, and the history of colonization and suppression of Aboriginal land management has played a role as well. Beck talks about. Uh, cultural burning, and that for tens of thousands of years, Aboriginal Australians managed their environment through controlled burns. What is this cultural burning, and how does it actually strengthen ecosystems? What do you know about that? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so this is another contributing factor, apart of putting climate change aside for a second, to why these fires have become so severe. Um, cultural burning which is kind of funny term, so it can be hard to understand, is basically the way that Aboriginal and Indigenous communities have um, used fire deliberately to control the landscape in a way that is beneficial to the ecosystems around them, and that also makes it less likely that these fires will occur in such horrific ways as they have this past summer. What that consists of is actually starting fires before and after the main bushfire season. So in cultural burning, you start a fire before with an understanding of what that's going to do to the specific local ecosystem you're talking about. If there are that are going to fry up under a certain heat, you want to keep the fire below that heat to make sure that the nutrients don't get burned when you're clearing fuel and making sure that there's not things for naturally started bushfires to burn in the middle of bushfire season. And then likewise, if there are animal habitats that are in the ecosystem that would be very sensitive to fire, under cultural burning, you take great care not to burn those ecosystems. And then to get to the second part of it, after the fire season, cultural burning, you go in and to prevent the growth of invasive species after a fire has swept through, you do a second low-level burn. So basically start a second set of small fires. And that might sound paradoxical, but what it does is it clears the invasive species that have begun to move in immediately after a bushfire. 
and makes room for the species that were there before the bushfire to return. So that's cultural burning. And one of the things that's happened over the course of Australia's colonial history, once settlers from England and and Europe came in, is they came and saw what they thought was a crazy sight. A lot of Aboriginal communities lighting fires to prevent fires. And they put a stop to that Uh in a way that has actually paved the way for the kind of destructive bushfire seasons that we're now seeing. Civilization, ho! (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) That was in a uh, a Firesign Theater record many years ago, uh, making some satire of it. But that that is a fascinating story. You know, the the white settlers, of course, know better than the darker-skinned aboriginals. Uh, We pay a heavy, heavy price for that. And traditional fire practitioner, as you wrote about Victor Stephenson, said of the older generation of aboriginals, these those old people are walking encyclopedias. And you know, they know how to look after our own country, yet no one was listening to them. The authorities weren't listening. How and why has the knowledge of cultural burning been suppressed for so long? I can, you know, when the white settlers first came in, you know, they, they want to do it their way, but how how is the, how and why has that knowledge been continually suppressed? Yeah, I find that quote very striking, and I think that's also from the the Abakai Beck article about oh, yes. cultural burning. Um, I I think what is one of the things that happened in Australia, and you know, Bert, we should say that this is a this is a story that very much applies to the United States as well. Um, I've not reported from the indigenous communities in the U.S., but uh, you'll find many journalists who will tell you that when they talk about fire prevention strategies with uh, firefighting teams in the States, you'll hear the same story, that there were much better methods to control fires under indigenous practices Mm -hmm. than there have been under the Western-style practices that we've brought in. Um, and the way that that knowledge of, of those indigenous practices of cultural burning has been suppressed is the same way that many pieces of indigenous knowledge have been suppressed. Yes. So instead of allowing cultural burning to continue, um, from quite early on in their arrival, the colonists in Australia began to institute what they call hazard reduction burning, which is a very different way of responding to fires and trying to prevent them. And the way that hazard reduction works is instead of being sensitive to the ecosystem that you're working with, you drop uh, what they call an incendiary, which is just a a gas or a um, sort of spark to start a fire, often from a plane, literally just drop it into a landscape to start what, under Western-style practices, we call a controlled burn. And this might at first seem similar to cultural burning, where you burn before the fire season begins in order to prevent prevent wildfires from spreading. But the difference is that there's no sensitivity to the ecosystem itself. So a controlled burn, as opposed to a cultural burn, might completely... um, burn all of the nutrients in the soil of an ecosystem, Uh might destroy an an animal habitat, 
and certainly will not address the problem of what you do with invasive species that come back after the fires have swept through. So the hazard reduction that has replaced cultural burning has actually been much more detrimental than it has been beneficial to fighting fires. And the one other note that I would add on this is that there are some cases in recent years of communities in Australia returning to cultural burning. Uh So a small indigenous community in New South Wales, the state that Sydney is in, in 2017 began to exercise cultural burning instead of hazard reduction. And 2017 is obviously quite recent, so we don't have a full sense of the impact that that's had. But from the couple of fire seasons that have passed since then, we have very clear evidence that that community's use of cultural burning has kept them and their ecosystem much safer from the bushfires that have swept through in those past two years than the hazard reduction burning that the state of Australia continues to implement around those small isolated communities. Ah, fascinating. I'm reminded of, you know, we've had a lot of coastal flooding and big hurricanes here, uh, no doubt related to the whole global warming thing. And I've heard about, you know, indigenous people that knew how to, you know, work with the marshes, not, excuse me, build directly on sensitive areas and work it out so that flooding is actually managed. But we haven't listened to the people who lived in, you know, relative peace and uh, security for a couple thousand years or so. What about the government of Australia, the liberal government? And we'll talk about the politics there. Have they started to call on Aboriginal Indigenous leaders to help figure out solutions? The short answer to that is no. Um, And the longer answer to that is they haven't started to call on anyone, really, to help figure out solutions. When we, We should say that when we talk about liberal in Australia... We mean what to Americans would mean conservative. Yes. <laughs> so in Australia, they use liberal in the kind of European sense of libertarian, right? And uh, currently, the oh, government wow. in Australia is a coalition of the liberal and national parties. Ooh. The national party is basically a right-wing nationalist party. Oh, great. So uh, this, yeah, it's a great combination. And... This coalition, headed up by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's a member of the Liberal Party, um, has responded to the fires first very slowly. So initially, initially in December, there was almost no federal response at all. As I mentioned when I was talking about Mayor Mark Greenhill in Katoomba begging effectively for federal resources that just weren't there to fight these fires. And in the past month or so, those federal resources have started to come as the fires hit the front page in international newspapers and the pressure on the federal government became impossible for Prime Minister Morrison Uh to ignore. But what they have ignored is any effort to address the underlying cause of these fires, or I should say the cause that has made these fires as bad as they are, which is climate change. And instead of addressing Australia's role in the climate crisis, what Prime Minister Morrison and his government have done is craft a kind of new form of climate denial that acknowledges climate change is real and admits that there's a link between 
the fires and climate change, but then finds various ways to back out of actually doing anything about it from the Australian perspective. And this was most manifest in the government's actions in the International UN Climate Conference that occurs annually and was happening this year in Madrid in December at the precise moment that these fires were really taking off in Australia. So another level of irony that while the fires were burning, the government was in Austra- was in Madrid um, in, and rather than doing something to address the underlying causes of the fires that were burning in its own country, the government decided to go to Madrid and try and scuttle the UN climate negotiations entirely. So as you say uh, uh, that uh, in terms of climate justice, Australia is a rare combination of perpetrator and victim. And I'm reminded, and you in your article uh, compare the Morrison government's response to the uh, fires to the Republican, American Republicans' response to mass shootings in the U.S. There's always, you know, thoughts and prayers. That works so well. And, you know, there are people, I guess, in, in Australia, in the Morrison government, insisting, oh, now is not the time to politicize the issue. According to your article, Morrison is no longer saying that the country doesn't need to act on climate change. He's saying something far more sinister. And you hinted at that a little bit. What do you mean by that? So two things. The first, just your point about um, Australia being a combination of a perpetrator and a victim in terms of climate justice. Uh, which, by which I basically just mean justice in relation to climate change and the way that climate change is going to affect various communities around the world. Australia is a kind of strange mixture uh, in the international community. The way that this maps out when scientists try and predict which nations are going to bear the brunt of the worst impacts of climate change in the years to come um, brutally maps onto the nations that have done the least, <clears throat> excuse me, to cause the problems that they're going to face. So poorer communities in the global South are the ones that are most likely to be most heavily impacted by climate change. Northern communities like the U.S., like England, like most of Europe, are going to be less heavily impacted And that's not to say they're not going to face impacts. And we know firsthand in the U.S. about the 100-year floods that we now have every couple of years, the Southwest, um, and in Houston, and in Texas, and the fires in California. All of those things are absolutely going to happen to developed countries as well, but not as severely as they will to countries in the global South. And the only exception to that is Australia. Australia is one of the major polluters in the world on all of the lists that rank pollution by total carbon emissions, by carbon emissions per person in the country, by historical carbon emissions, by emissions that are predicted. Um, Australia is way high up there, but it's also way high up there on the list of countries that are going to be most adversely impacted. Uh So that's what I meant when I said it was a perpetrator and a victim. To your point about the sort of Morrison saying something more sinister, than just straightforwardly denying climate science. What I meant by that is that what his government's response to the climate crisis has been 
over these past couple of months, as reporters have demanded that he say something about it because of its connection to the fires, has been to say, look, climate change is real. We know it's real. It's affecting Australia. We know it's going to continue to affect Australia. But we, Australia, have done our part. That's a direct quote from Morrison. And that's something that he and his government will insist on over and over again, that Australia is doing their part to reduce their carbon emissions, which contribute directly to global warming, and that they can't really do anything more. And it's the U.S.'s fault, or it's China's fault, or it's Brazil's fault, or it's some other big polluter's fault. And the reason that's more sinister is it's just not true. Um, Australia has not, by any calculation, done its part to reduce its carbon emissions. And we can, we can get into the ways that they're playing with the numbers in order to make it seem like they have. Well, yeah, let's do that. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about the uh, Australian fires, the uh, devastating wildfires, uh, how they were not inevitable, uh, and what and how Australia has been both perpetrator and victim. Our guest is Daniel Judd, a graduate student in political theory at Oxford University, and uh, he's written an article, uh, the current uh, the cover story on the uh, Nation magazine. Well, I, I am reminded of uh, you know how we the big businesses here in the United States sort of deal with climate change. Uh, they don't really deal with it, of course. Is uh, well, there's sort of a, a window dressing here. Uh, there's pollution credits, which actually allow emissions trading, cooking the books, sort of thing. And one of the points uh, is a rule adopted by the Kyoto Protocol back in 90-something. Uh, it's called the Australia Clause. So how, how does that uh, uh, enable Australia um, to sort of slip around, uh, you know, re- reducing carbon emissions? Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this is really the root of how Australian climate politics went wrong. And to get to that route, you got to go back to 1997, which is when the Kyoto Protocol, which is the first major international climate agreement, was passed. Um, And at that conference, Australia negotiated a really generous pledge for what it would do with its emissions. So Australia said, we will grow our emissions that's right, grow, not lessen, by um, 8% over our 1990 levels by 2012. So the agreement was already really generous to Australia. It allowed them to continue to emit more over the next decade and a bit. And yet, even so, in the final minutes of the conference, or in the final days, um, Australia's delegation insisted on putting in what you just referred to the Australia Clause, which is uh, Article 3.7 in the Kyoto Protocol. For those who are interested, you can look it up and just go read it online. And the language is actually fairly clear. And what Australia did with that clause is they said, when we count our emissions, we're going to include emissions from land use, which is a really technical term that just means things we do with the land, we're going to measure in our total emissions calculations, instead of just measuring, say, our energy production or the emissions we put out from cars in our country. And the reason that they did that was because in 1990, 
And remember, that's the original point from which they're going to measure their emissions in the Kyoto Protocol. In 1990, there was a big spike in emissions from land use in Australia. Um, and the government knew that that spike was not going to last. It was naturally going to go down to normal levels of land use emissions. And what that was going to mean is that as land use emissions went down from the 1990 levels, they could continue to produce more fossil fuels, to put more cars on the road, to put more dirty electricity into people's homes, and their total emissions wouldn't go up because the land use emissions would be going down back to normal levels. And that's exactly what happened. So on the technical numbers under the Kyoto Protocol Agreement, if you look it up, you'll see that when land use figures are included, Australia beat its target. It emitted 2.5% more in 2012 than it did in 1990. And remember, its target was 8% more. But when you take away those land use figures that were used to hide mm -hmm. the actual emissions growth, Australia in 2012 emitted 28% more than it did in 1990. Wow. And this is really technical stuff. It's the kind of stuff that they're, the Australian government is banking on normal citizens not paying attention to, right, <laughs> and just seeing the end product. But when you dig into it, what you actually find is that it is, it's exactly what you said, it's cooking the books. There's no other way to put it. And they've continued to emit more and more and more while finding ways to manipulate the statistics to make it look like they're emitting less. As my dad used to say, figures it's don't lie, but liars figure. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and it's it's amazing how they do that. Figuring people won't get into the to the weeds, and of course we don't. We have other things to do, and so the people who can you know make some money by it by you know fooling around with the numbers and creating these different uh, processes, yeah, it works pretty well for them. I I found it interesting to read in your article how ESSO, which is an arm of ExxonMobil. In fact, it used to be called ESSO here in the States, worked with the Australian Navy to rescue people from the fire. In what ways is that ironic, given the role of uh, climate change and, and uh, fossil fuels? Yeah, ironic is right. Another, another irony. Um, so this was in early January in a town called Malakuta, which is on the tip-tip-tip of the southeast coast of Australia, in the state of New South Wales, a couple, couple hours south by car of Sydney. Uh, and it's a beachside community, and the community was this town of Malakuta in the southeast of Australia was surrounded by fire, and residents had to retreat to the beach and be evacuated on the beach by um, not only the Australian Navy, but also by these uh, SO, ExxonMobil, ships that were brought in from an oil rig nearby. And obviously the irony of this really? is that, you know, you were talking about those companies that do a kind of window dressing in the States where they say they're acting on climate change and being conscientious participants in the fight against global warming, but really are doing just the opposite. Yes. And that's ExxonMobil in a nutshell. So they're going to be there to help people escape the fires. But at the same time, their projections through 2030 have them producing 35% more fossil fuels than they produce right now. Oh. So they're fine helping to window dress and slightly fix the problem on the back end, but they're going to continue making these fires worse 
from the fossil fuels that they emit. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, at least it's profitable for them. What, what about another part of the, uh, the problem, the fossil fuel industry, is coal, of course. Tell us about the power of coal interests in uh, the Australian government. This was really driven home to me by uh, an activist I spoke to, the director of the Climate Action Network in Australia named Julianne Richards, who's been very involved in kind of studying the influences in climate politics in Australia. And when I asked her what the main reason for all of this inaction and cooking of the books that I've been talking about um, in Australian politics around climate change was, she said two words, coal lobby. And what she meant by that is the coal lobby in Australia operates in a way that, you know, we could say the Israel lobby really operates in the U.S., in that it exerts an amazing amount of influence on both political parties. Mm -hmm. So we often hear about how Australia's Liberal Party, the party that's currently in power, is completely beholden to coal interests. And coal is Australia's biggest export. Really? Australia is actually the biggest exporter of coal in the world right now. Um, Indonesia comes in second. And uh, as a result, coal has occupied this kind of mythical place in Australian politics in, in a way that is even more intense than in the States, even in coal country in the States, even in West Virginia. It's nothing as intense as the way that coal operates in Australian politics. And so how powerful are the coal interests I mean, how powerful can you imagine? Yeah. You know, uh, they're 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 pretty much they pretty much have a grip on Australian energy policy, and will continue to do so until we, as an international community, manage to break the back of the coal industry and stop coal from being a viable piece of our energy mix. Amen to that, boy! It's it's amazing to me. It's such a dirty fuel. I can't believe I had no idea it was that prominent and powerful in Australian politics. And there are a few major political parties in Australia. How have the other parties, other than Morrison's, reacted? Is there a perceived struggle between jobs and the environment? That that always plays uh, politically. How, how's that argument going? What about those yeah. other parties? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because um, I had just said that you know, the coal interests affect both parties, and then I had only focused on one. But the, the other party, which the other main political party in Australia is the Labour Party, the party on the left, and kind of the Democratic Party of Australia. And they have, I think it's fair to say, from the Labour Party officials I spoke to, long been pretty scared of their own shadow when it comes to climate politics. So they're a lot better than the Liberals. They acknowledge that Australia is playing a role in making climate change worse, and they say that it's important to bring Australia's emissions down, much further down than the Liberal government thinks they should. But they actually don't say that too loud or in the wrong communities. And the reason for this is that the main, one of the key voting bases for Labour in Australia is in the state of Queensland, okay. up in the northeast. And that is coal country in Australia. It's the place where most of the coal jobs are. And those coal jobs, which have been associated with unions 
for a long time are traditional labor, solid labor sure. bases. Yeah. Um, and I had the the minister, the shadow minister of energy and the environment for labor, a guy named Mark Butler, tell me that even though he didn't think fighting climate change was going to adversely impact these coal workers, if anything, it was going to allow them to have better jobs. Hmm. He did admit that there's a perception in Australia that if you want to fight climate change, you're going to hurt the coal working community. Right. And that's something that labor has always kind of found itself straddling and I don't think has really figured out how to deal with. Yeah, it's tough to look long-term when short-term people may lose jobs. But over the long-term, you're right. I mean, environmentalism exactly. can create a heck of a lot of jobs. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking with Daniel Jutt at uh, Oxford University, who's written a uh, very in-depth article in uh, The Nation magazine about Australia's devastating wildfires not being inevitable. Um, and oftentimes in the history of the British Empire, dissent has not been accepted uh, and has occasionally been dealt with harshly. Uh, though the sun finally did set mercifully on the British Empire, white Australia remains, I think, culturally close to that mother country. How has the government acted on climate activists? In, in sort of a British style? Yeah. So it's it's funny that you mentioned Australia, white Australia remaining culturally close to the mother country. I had one um, uh, New Zealander describe Australians to me as British Texans. So, you know, keep <laughs> oh, that New Zealand oh, and Australia have a bit of a rivalry. Maybe that gives you some sense of the <laughs> the kind of cultural mood in the country. Yikes. Um, but the the way that the government has acted on climate activists in Australia has been indeed very harsh. Um, so as a result of these fires in recent months, there's been a surge of uh, activist activity in Australia. Understandably so. People are furious and they're taking to the streets. I went to a couple of protests when I was covering the fires in Sydney and you could see a, a real visceral anger against the federal government and SCOMO as they mm -hmm. affect, not so affectionately have nicknamed their Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Right. Um, and the response from the Australian government has been twofold. One, they've blamed some of the causes, unbelievably enough, of the fires on what the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormick, calls liberal, sorry, liberal in our term, American term, capital city greenies, by which he means basically you know, tree huggers. Right, elitists. Um, and <laughs> the the argument is that actually by preventing backburning, preventing that controlled burning that we talked about earlier, uh, the Green Party in Australia and people who care about the environment have caused the fires to be worse. And that argument Whoa. has no basis in fact. <laughs> so we should dismiss that out of hand. The other thing that they've done is the government, in response to these protests, is they've passed in some states, including Queensland, that coal-heavy state that I just talked about in the northeast of Australia, and in Tasmania as well, they've tried to pass some laws that would criminalize activism and um, uh, hand multi-year jail sentences, oh in some cases, to activists who 
you know, participate in nonviolent civil disobedience by blocking a highway or gluing themselves to a public building. Um, the result could go one of two ways. It might make activists even angrier and lead to more protests, or it might serve to do what the Australian government hopes it will do, uh -huh. which is quell dissent, make it much harder to protest, and mean that the only way the Australian public is going to be able to affect change is going to be by waiting to vote in the next election, which is a full two and a half years away right now. Oh, wow. That is a long time to wait. And what, what about the Green Party? Here, pff, there's no Green Party. And, and it's traditional that uh, parties on the left tend to disagree amongst themselves and you know tear themselves apart. What, is there strength of the Green Party? How are they doing? Are they rising? And what's, what's their reaction to all this? I wish I could say that they're, they're rising, but um, as you rightly said, there's often a rift between yes. parties on the left about how to deal with Anything. sensitive <laughs> issues like climate change. Yeah. Um, and the Green Party and the Labour Party, the two parties on the left in Australia, don't have a very good relationship bet. As, as far as it comes to climate politics. And that mostly stems back to a 2007 dispute when the Labour Party, which was then in control, tried to pass a um, emissions trading scheme, basically a cap-and-trade mm -hmm. in American terms. Right. Uh, and the Green Party voted against it, scuttled the deal on the grounds that it was going to lock in an insufficient response to the climate crisis for too long a time. And Labour and the Greens have never forgiven each other since then. So Mark Greenhill, the mayor of the Blue Mountains in Katoomba, just to circle back to where we began, sure. the, the mayor who I was reporting with in Katoomba is a member of the Labour Party and called the Green Party's actions on climate change nothing more than a political stunt. Mm. And I think you'd find Green Party members who feel that the labor response is just insufficient pandering to um, other interests apart from those of the Australian people. So it's a tough divide on the left that is making things easier for Morrison's liberal government to go ahead and continue with their bad climate politics. Well, as my old friend Abby Hoffman once said, the relationship between the left and the right is perfect. The left is masochistic. The right is sadistic. It's perfect. And it goes on and on. <laughs> In terms of federal legislation, there is something called the Climate Solutions Fund. How, how significant is that in terms of the challenges? Yeah, here I, I feel sort of obligated to take off my you know, non-biased reporter hat and just say this is the Climate Solutions Fund in Australia is a joke. It's, I mean, I can't really think of another way to put it in a truthful <laughs> manner. The idea is basically that Australia has put in two billion Australian dollars over the course of the next 12 years to this thing that they're calling the Climate Solutions Fund and tasking it to solve climate change for the country and compensate for the other bad climate politics, the coal producing, the natural gas producing that the country is doing. Two billion Australian dollars over 12 years is about a billion U.S. dollars over 12 years. Over 12 years? To a sense, that's over 12 years total. And that's about the same as, say, Amtrak receives over one year in the U.S. And Amtrak is not exactly a well-funded institution. So um, 
Wow. You know, the, the scale of the government policies in place right now is uh, basically nil in, in Australia. Mm. And this has attracted the ire not just of citizens who are against the Liberal Party on the left and anyone who's been affected by the fires, but also of the business community, which traditionally aligns with the Liberal Party, but has said on this front, listen, you guys need to have a climate policy that at least gives us some indication of where we're going. Because at some point or another, something's going to give. This is not going to be a robust enough response to get in line with what the international community is going to do, come hell or high water, eventually, Hmm. on climate politics. And the Australian government has really not given the business community an answer on that. So one silver lining of this, if we want to speak politically about it, is that there's a growing divide between the business community, which wants a clear climate policy, and the Australian government, which is refusing to give them one. Yeah, the business community. I mean, I can imagine tourists who were thinking about going to Australia might uh, think twice about that. That's that's real money. And and mm-hmm. as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Um, the mayor of Katoomba, getting back to Mr. Greenville, told you what sits behind those fires is truly worrying. What did he mean by that? He was talking when he said what sits behind those fires is truly worrying. He was talking about climate change. And to paint the picture of the scene for a second, when Mark Greenhill, the mayor of Katoomba, said that to me, we were standing on a lookout over the valleys around Katoomba. And it was December 19th, just before the fires really hit the international press. And the entire valley, which is normally lush and green, if you look up Google images of Katoomba and of the Blue Mountains, you'll see these beautiful green valleys sweeping across the landscape. That entire valley was parched and smoky and full of fire. And you could see these plumes of smoke rising up from every direction. And it was then that Greenhill turned to me and said, it's what lies behind these fires that really worries me. And that hit home for me because um, what that conveyed is there are there is no modicum of doubt amongst the local citizens who are experiencing these fires, that this is not normal, that there is climate change driving these fires to the point where they've become much worse than they ever have been before, and that we need to start worrying, not just about the fires, but about what's behind them as well. And I think that point can't be emphasized enough. That is extremely important. And, and you ask in the article in The Nation, will the fires send us mercifully toward the dramatic climate action that we now have only a decade to take? Or will they mark the moment when the climate crisis became too advanced to be altered and climate action become about cooking our books as our planet staggered toward untold dystopias? Yikes. Might we, end of your quote, might we all over the Western fossil fuel addictive world be, as you say, headed in one direction or the other on the verge of a climate revolution or on the brink of climate reaction? What's your sense? Has this woken up people? I would think it must have somewhat. You know, you'd hope, right? And that's the, that is certainly one of the senses that I got in Australia um, from my, my month of reporting down there. I got the sense that there is some degree to which people will not forget these fires. This is different than people have seen it before. 
it was impossible not to talk about. It was on everybody's mind, and I think it continues to be on everyone's mind in the country. On the other hand, there is a fear behind that hope that I heard often in Australia expressed by local citizens and by firefighters alike. And that fear is that we have a tendency to pass through these crises and instead of treating the underlying causes, focus only on taking these crises as the new normal and finding a way to adapt to living with this new reality. And I think the fear in Australia right now is that we really are on a tipping point that could go either way. Instead of leading us toward immediate climate action, it is possible that these fires will prompt Australian citizens to say, look, this is what we have to work with right now. There's not much we can do about it. So let's settle for what we can. And that kind of thinking, which is certainly what the liberal government wants people to do, is the kind of thinking that as the climate crisis gets worse and worse over the next decade, we're going to have to learn how to avoid. Wow. I would say very, very interesting. Some great reporting from deep in Australia. Uh, Daniel Judd, thank you so much. The article is in The Nation magazine. I look forward to uh, perhaps speaking to you again and reading other important stuff you report on. Thank you so much. And let's hope. Thanks so much for having me on. Pleasure to talk. 